Hello. Hello. Industry. Industry. Hey everybody and welcome back to Industry. Industry? Industry. Industry? Industry Tactics. Is that the name? That's a, that's the podcast. I'm Friendly Rich, your loyal host, and I hope you've been doing well. I've got some live shows coming up that I hope to see you at. You can get more info on those at FriendlyRich.com. Thank you. See so many new listeners every week. It's very inspiring. I hope you're enjoying yourselves. And this week, prepare to be dazzled. Uh, a chat with the Italian composer and scholar... Luciano Kessa, he was in Norway at the time and we caught up a delightful chat of his career, basically from 14th century counterpoint all the way through to Luigi Russolo. I call him the Indiana Jones of noise music. He went all the way to Prague seeking some of Russolo's original noise machines uh, that there are none left in the world, these intra-rumori. So Kessa took it upon himself to construct a set of these amazing noise machines. What a journey, what a career. Uh, We get into it. This is episode number 153 of Industry Tactics, my delightful chat with none other than Luciano Kessa. For more fun here on Industry Tactics, Friendly Rich here, and I am delighted, honored, stoked to invite Luciano Keza to the podcast. Luciano, welcome. Thank you very much, Rich. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do you? What, how do you pronounce your last name? Did I get it? You got it so close that I was almost like screaming in joy because oh, usually... Usually I get the Chesa treatment. No, no, I wasn't going to do that. And so you said Kesa, and I yeah. think it's actually Kesa. Kesa. But it's like, Kesa. Yeah. But because okay. most of it was correct, I was very, very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, because when I look at your last name, I think it's almost Kesa, which is church. Right. Correct. And, and do you think there's some lineage there? No, in terms of the etymology of the word, absolutely not. Uh, Maybe the opposite. It's funny because it's funny because the spelling is close enough, but I'm from mm-hmm. Sardinia, and Kessa it's a very specific thing. Okay. Kessa, Kessa is um, uh, well, it's a plant. It's a it's a it's a, it's a quite known plant. It is found everywhere in Sardinia, and yeah. I didn't know what it was or the exact translation into English until until Frederick Jeski was. <laughs> Ask me, what is that in English? And I'm like, Frederick, let me check. And then I check it, and it's mastic tree. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> amazing, amazing. It took Jeski to uh, to help you get there, eh? Well, nobody has ever cared of asking exactly what the meaning that of that was in yeah. English. And in, it, in, it, in, it, in Italy, I can just simply say, yeah. yo, it's lentischio. But I never translated Lentischio, which is the, the Italian name, into English. I never yeah, yeah. really thought. Somebody really wanted to know, and I'm like, let me look in the dictionary. <laughs> oh, fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> uh, did you know Did you know Frederick well? We knew fairly well, yeah, because yeah. we had exchanged messages for a while. And then when he came to Mills College, gosh, when it would have been... 2008, I want to say, or maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe eight. He came to Mills College in the Bay Area, invited mm-hmm. by them on their, uh, the music program had this grant to bring, uh, to bring pianists that will specialize or perform 19th century classic repertoire. Wow, wow. <laughs> and so they yeah. constantly tried to figure out how to, 
how to fix, how to bring things that they were interested in using this money because it was the donation from some from some person that loved the you know 19th century piano repertoire mm-hmm. and uh, from maybe the 1940s or 30s you know yeah, and she yeah. just left this money but could only be used for that and they and at the time Frederick was performing live the old cycle of uh, Mendelssohn's song without words oh, all wow, of them wow. from the first to the last one it's a pretty yeah. long concert yeah, he was yeah. just playing those and actually he was going back to play some of the music from like standard repertoire i mean he was playing beethoven 111 and i think he played one of six okay. that are even recorded and so okay. they were like perfect let's have frederick so yeah. they invited him and he of course played this concert when it was all mendelssohn which was gorgeous oh, wow. but then he also played i think a concert of the people united the entire okay. uh, set of variation and then the last uh, the third concert were composition of his own music where he also played in it um conducted i think by you know by uh the steed steed coward with the new music ensemble at mills so while okay. he was there i was teaching in san francisco at the conservatory okay. and uh, immediately i said you know like i i want freddy to come to my classes and oh man you know i knew alvin kern quite well at the point and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and i was teaching a lot of music by Frederick in my classes at the conservatory so oh, wow. nice i brought time. it to the yeah to the conservatory but i also drove him all around the bay area and so on i mean it's oh, wow. a, yeah and then so this was a while ago we stayed in say. touch a little bit but yeah 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 when was that when would it have been luciana it would have been 2007 or 2008 okay, okay. i'm thinking yeah so yeah yeah i think he a while ago i i want to say he came to toronto around that time too uh, hmm. that, that that rings a bell. So maybe 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 he was uh, maybe he was touring around a little bit. Um, I know he came to Toronto and did a stint here uh, okay. around then as well. So that's cool. Huh. It could very well be. I think he play. He was playing. I mm-hmm. mean, it was a moment that he was quite actively playing. In part because he also needed to do that really at that point. But also, I, I think you know there was a series of things were happening in the U.S. So it could very well have been. That because I don't know how often he returned to the U.S. I know I saw him one time at the conservatory in San Francisco when I no longer was teaching there. I was already in New York, and he mm. was uh, he he they performed coming together with Angela Davis. Oh wow! Wow! Yeah, and this wow. was I don't know maybe forty four or five years ago. He was uh-huh. very old at that point. Okay, okay, but okay. it was a good one. He yeah. was not performing. He was just in the audience. But okay, okay. Yeah. So um, we jumped into it. We, we defined <laughs> Kesa. I still didn't Kes- get it. Kesa, 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 which yes. is a mystic tree. Did I get it? Uh, no, mastic. A mastic. mastic tree, even better. Yes. Yeah, the mastic tree is the one that is used to make turpentine. That's more like it because we're going to unpack uh, the life, <laughs> uh, the career of this uh, incredible human. Uh, I'm in, so impressed by your body of work, but let's do a bit of an elevator pitch because I have all kinds of weirdos. I mean, this this podcast is to interview and unpack outsiders in music, people who really um, just take it to uh, in their own way to a new place. And you are one, you're certainly one of those people when I look at your career. Um, I obviously want to focus a lot of this conversation around your work, uh, both scholarly and uh, and on stage uh, around celebrating the, the the work of Luigi Russolo. So I, I I want to kind of keep it angled around that and the art of noise and all of that because that's a love of mine. And and while we have you here, I really want to we want to learn from the master. But uh, elevator okay. pitch in terms of like a quick. Not like my question, unfortunately. A quick snippet of how you define yourself as an artist, where you've been, kind of, for those who don't know know you and are coming at this really new to get to know you. Yeah, I mean, I guess I said I'm a musician, and that's kind of it. I, it's really complicated to have to explain oh, God. further, but I think it's, it seems like an easy way of just... Saying, saying everything and anything at the same time. That was almost too. That was almost too simple for me. If you go to his yeah. Wikipedia, you'll see what I'm talking about. It is a. Uh, it's expensive, yeah. and, and and so is your website and just your body of work, uh, both as a composer, but also as a, 
as a scholar, as a musicologist, the whole thing. I mean, I have the, I got your baby right oh. here. One of your, <laughs> you know, the funny thing is I have his, I lifted up his book, uh, Luigi Russolo, Futurist, Noise, Visual Arts and the Occult. I had that book in my library for ages and I didn't realize I came across you in a different way. You know, um, I came across your work and your music, uh, but it's all tied into this noise and, and the way you're, you're linked to Russolo. And I, I want to unpack that, your journey with, uh, with noise and with Russolo, because I think it's so fascinating. Like you've done a deep dive. So I kind of, I'd love to frame our conversation around that, you know, if I may. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fine. So, uh, where to begin? Like, where where did you, you you said you grew up in Sardinia? Where did you um, when did you first learn about Russolo's work? In Sardinia, because uh, so my my dad bought uh, and I, uh, this kind of like uh, history of history of Western music ten ten LPs I think or maybe maybe 20 LPs that Deutsche Grammophon uh, did it for Italy in cooperation with the publisher. I can remember an Italian publisher, maybe Gardanti. And it's, uh, it's interesting because there was a complete disconnect between what the content of the record was and what the accompanying booklets were, which were thick booklets. I mean, it yeah, would have yeah. been yeah. maybe 150 to 200 pages, uh, oh, wow. you know, wow. books. They were essentially books. No? Yeah. And so on the one hand, the books sketch the history, uh, the music history, and then the, the records sort of accompany that. And of course, you know, there's a, a record uh, or actually like it for, for the, uh, I say the romantic period, you know, there will be Mendelssohn and Schubert. And so, you know, so there are recordings of pieces like, I don't know, like Mendelssohn Violin Concerto uh, or Schubert Unfinished Symphony, some of like the blockbuster stuff. And then the, rec- and then the book comments about the period. Then okay. there was commissioned by Italian musicologists, which were quite good. So there was also a, 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 uh, the last uh, the last uh, of the ten books was called "The New Frontiers." Here we go. <laughs> Here so we go. It was all the 20th century. So, and interestingly, had so in the recording you will have stuff like Webern and Schoenberg, but yeah. also Stravinsky and yeah. so on. I don't think there was anything further than. I mean, and I, I can't recall anything post-war, for example. No, uh, okay. The book. The book, however, uh, I mean, yeah, because even Schoenberg's uh, output sort of stopped uh, in any case. It sort of like uh, was mostly, I think it was Verklarten Act. So it was just the very mm-hmm. first, you know, successful composition by him. So it's the very, very beginning of Schoenberg anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the book actually stretches all the way to the to, to the end of the 20th century and was written, I can't remember who was the musicologist, mm-hmm. but it was in the last chapter mm-hmm. of this book, there was a reproduction of Russolo's uh, uh, score from The Awakening of the City. Uh, and so it was, you know, the, the the argument of this chapter was also, oh, there's also music based with noise in the 20th century. And there were a few interesting photographs. One was the reproduction of Russolo. The other was Stockhausen, Playing yeah. from Ausdensieben Tagen, uh, one of the uh, intensity, and so okay. he's playing intensity, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with the with hammer and nails on a board. Now he that nice. was his performance. Nice. I mean, I nice. was yeah. ten years old. Yeah, like. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh wow! Here we go! Here we go! Yeah, exactly. And so it was incredible, mind blowing. This all like idea, the one, and I was already studying piano. Okay. So so definitely, I was attracted to the score. And attracted mm-hmm. to the visual qualities of that, and of course yeah. the bizarre name of the instrumentation. Yes, Nothing yes. I've ever heard about it, like growlers and uh, you yes, know, r- yes. rumblers. <laughs> I mean, it's the so best. It's, like, it's the best. It's the best. Yeah. So it was that, and then uh-huh. at the same time, I I, t- I take a short tour because I think this is actually quite important, and I think it will answer a lot of questions. So while I was looking and, and, and browsing this book. Of course, there was no sound reference of that. The record didn't have this this music. So, of course, in my mind, I was like, how does this sound like? 
I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, yeah, I could yeah. envision a score with music, with with violins or percussion, but this sure, was something sure. else. At the same time, I just started to study in the local conservatory, and my first piano teacher, uh, called Gisela Frontero, well, she had studied with the it, with basically the Italian David Tudor. Okay. He was a composer as well as a performer who essentially brought Feldman in Italy, was friends with Cage. Right. And he actually, Giancarlo, was very, we were very close. He died two days ago. So I'm mentioning this also because it's been so much in my mind. So my mm-hmm. first piano teacher studied with, with, mm-hmm. with Cardini. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cardini was quite close also to a whole set of American musicians that constantly came to Italy, and not so much, not just Cage and Feldman, but also, um, you know, other American composers from further generations as well, or in any case, all contemporary, like a whole set of contemporary uh, composers that, which will have some kind of notoriety in, uh, in Italy. And he was close to them, performing their music, and so on. And the recording of this Italian label, which was notorious for a bunch of things called Cramps Records. So Cramps Records also released at first a record of futurist music too. Uh, On Cramps Records were the first recording of Marinetti's voice and Uh then the first Uh recording of the Intona Rumori in the early reconstruction that was made in the mid-70s. So it's all kind of like coming together, but he also was very close to Robert Ashley. So one of the earliest Ashley release on record was instigated by Giancarlo and was done on Crump's record. Uh, it's a Ashley, you know, piece from from the early 70s. How do you spell uh, Camp's records? Cramps records? Cramps, like... Uh, cramps? Uh, like like, a, like, yes, like when you have cramps. <laughs> I mean, okay, like, a, like a, okay. Cramps records. It's, okay, okay, I'm going to yes. look this up. Okay. Yeah. And so Cramps, on Cramps' record, a few record, early recordings of Cage also came out. Oh, wow. So, wow. so which were, like, important because, you know, there is not... Yeah. Cage had so many releases in the 70s, and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so this was certainly, uh, like, there's a, a Cage concert... Uh, in Milan, that is kind of notorious that came out on Cramps record where, ah, yes. where he's performing a solo concert. And so anyway, that, this was Cardini's label. But my first piano teacher studied with Cardini, so I met Cardini. Cool. And also she performed herself at Roulette in New York. So she met Cage. Ah. So uh, unlike a lot of, I guess, kids in the 80s going to an Italian conservatory, mm-hmm. I was quite lucky to study with Gisela Frontero. That was, that's her name. Yes. And I, I owe to her a lot of uh, what eventually I end up doing because I find myself projected into this world. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, she said, I can't teach next week because I'm flying to New York to play in this club called Roulette. And mm-hmm. then she, you know, met in person Cage, but we were studying Amores you know, okay. one of the prepared piano pieces as okay. a class project. Wow. So, wow. Oh, oh that, as a class project. So these were group piano lessons with Gisela. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's... Um, or conservatory. Piece. Yeah, it was in the conservatory, but it was I like... It, I said class project because the, the letter of the law will uh, force piano teacher to teach you just Bach and Beethoven and Clementi and all those things. We haven't so changed much. So this is like a side... Yeah. to a class project, but she knew I was okay. very intrigued by this. Okay. What and, a great uh, teacher. What a great teacher. Yeah. So, so she, fed that, she fed that curiosity that you saw in that first record where you, you learned of Russolo's work. She's having yeah. you prepare pianos and, and, and perform cage pieces. At what age? How old are you at that point? So I would have been maybe 13, I think. Oh, 13 wow. or 14. And so, wow. but, but it's just, it's a very strange thing because, I mean, Sardinia, if you look at it, the map, is an island. Sure, I But know because yeah. she was so, so, and so I'm not exactly centrally located, but somehow right. she was a young professor and at the beginning of her career, and they mm-hmm. sent her to Sardinia from the mainland. Okay, great. And, yeah. uh, and she was playing almost exclusively contemporary music. And I think if I was in Milan, I would have studied with people that yeah. were much more entrenched in the academia than she yeah. was. Yeah, but you got you, know, you, you got the off-Broadway version, which was, it right. sounds like she, she was doing a little more of the <laughs> risky stuff out there in Sardinia because no one's paying attention, right? It's like, exactly. I'll get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love exactly. this. Exactly. 
But you see how paradoxical it is. You think, oh yeah. my God, Sardinia, like, I mean, you must have been behind, but somehow, ironically, it was not yeah. the case. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, touching, uh, you're, you're, you're touching on a vein. I, I've done about 150 plus of these interviews, Luciano, and it's basically interviewing people from the Sardinias of the world. Like, I'm from <laughs> a, little, a little piss pot town just uh, west of, northwest of, of Toronto, and it's the same thing. It's kind of like, when you're working in the shadows, no one's really no one's really bothering you because you're kind of an underdog in a way, right? And and that's the vibe yeah, I'm that's getting here from. Okay. Uh, but wow, <laughs> what a rich musical diet you, you sound like you're having at a young age, eh? I was lucky. I undoubtedly yeah, I was, and I certainly own a lot of them. Also, she encouraged me to do the to write the first composition i mean i kind of wanted to write but i was inhibited i was not studying composition yet i was just a piano student but she was like you don't have to study composition if you write something and i'll take a look and yeah i know i mean it was very very um unscripted and Mm -hmm. uh and very nurturing you know without too much hang-ups then i of course i went to bologna to continue okay. the conservatory and start the university. And uh, mm-hmm. and then I, of course, study composition. But the, in fact, the irony, I go to a larger city mm-hmm. and then I had to change piano teacher after the first five years. And the second piano teacher I had, she was great, but you wouldn't p- be able to propose anything past Brahms. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I in the mean, bigger I mean, l- limitations, in my opinion. Like, it's it's uh, it's beautiful that early. So would you say that Gisela Frontero kind of stands out as one of those monumental teachers that really shook you and, and, and helped you on your path? Yeah? Well, undoubtedly so. I mean, yeah. I would say Gisela, I would say Umberto Eco, I would say Douglas Kahn. I mean, they were among the best uh, I had, for sure. Gisela oh. was certainly... I mean, she's not a celebrity, and I think also she paid the price of trying to be a composer as a woman in, in yeah. the chauvinistic Italy in the 70s and 80s. It's there not like it's hard. Yeah. it was hard for her, but, just, yeah. you know, yeah. anyway, yeah. but amazing uh, teacher for me. Also, teaching pieces from the standard repertoire because you know we were also required by the by the school to 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 study back and one of the things of the beautiful thing that i really got from her mm. was that she would put everything in the same plane and that also meant that she wouldn't look down to schubert or mozart you know that yeah. actually was uh, you know i mean yeah. right, <laughs> we right. Would somebody playing contemporary music and then suddenly they have an attitude against yeah, you know Schubert, and then you know she would really call attention to oh, look what Schubert is doing here, Great. how beautiful yeah. it is. Yeah. So I mean that's also very valuable. It is, it is. It's that broad spectrum. Uh, I like talking about Carlo Rossi wine, but I'd rather be drinking it. We're gonna cut to some of uh, Luciano's music. Let's um, let's play something from Petrolio. Okay. Let's play the. Uh, part one this is with uh is this you are you performing on this track no this is sarah cahill so uh, sarah cahill and chris for playing the pieces for piano percussion and i wrote right. for that the piece and they're performing it okay 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 so here's christopher fro and 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 sarah cahill uh part sarah. one Thank you. 
Lovely, lovely. And so we kind of get your that was a little a little a little soupçon of your musical voice, but it, it sounds to me like as we were talking earlier about the breadth between something like a, a you know a Brahms piece all the way through to to more contemporary composers as Stockhausen. Um, that's how you treat your. I, I hear a lot of that in your musical output. I hear um, you're not always noisy, right? No, but I like to, I like to put noise close to close to all you know maybe melodies and see what mm-hmm. the effect is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's uh, sometimes I, I mean so, so there's a. A few years that I've been doing also some graphic work, some of which is in my in my website now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been doing a lot of work using the using the color green and okay. as a theme. And so some friends were and all of a sudden I I had one piece that uses magenta and green. And so some friends were saying, "Oh, you are betraying green." And I said, "No, I'm making green greener <laughs> because." I- contrast green becomes even more green if i once once you get green and green and green how do you get any greener and you get greener if you if you slam there into the mix the very opposite of it so the the mm-hmm. brightness green comes even more in focus and i think that's kind of the idea i, I like mm-hmm. a lot of emphasizing contrasts mm-hmm. and that's just one of the way because noise is not just a, a wave it's also the I, the, sure. the metaphor is the contrast in other words uh, yes. if you only noise it kind of fades in the background yeah the, yeah. the only way you can get that the aggressive beautiful quality of noise, you, the only way you can get this invasion in your eardrums is if you actually put it in a context in which other elements are clashing with it. From Cage to Russolo, right? If you really map that out, the silence all the way through, in a way, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so, so you learn composition. You be, can you talk a little bit about that piece that we just heard? Yeah. Uh, where that falls in your career. Yeah, so the piece is important for for a couple of reasons for me. Mm. Uh, the main one is that I studied composition in Italy, but then I moved to the United States for a PhD. I'm sorry and, to hear that. Uh, hmm? I said I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> well, I'm just so, being a, I'm being a dick. I'm living up to my my name. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's okay. fine. It's fine. Well, I mean, it was it was the late nineties. Exactly, I, exactly, exactly. It hadn't fallen yet. i'll stop i'll stop i was going to california and that sounded lovely anyway and so anyway yeah i thought uh so i started this phd but uh Mm. when i applied to a phd i first i thought i want to study composition but then my thought was i studied enough i mean i had studied (laughs) composition at that point for seven years yeah yeah and Point is, I kind of want to write the music the way that I wanted to. I was kind of tired of having people to tell me what to do. At, the, at that point, I studied counterpoint, I studied fugue, I studied orchestration. Mm. So, I mean, I think doing a PhD in composition to the sound like a great idea. So, mm. I I went for a PhD in music history. Mm. Originally, to continue the work I was doing in Bologna in the university as a music historian, which was working on on late 14th century French counterpoint. So I wrote a dissertation in Bologna on the subject, and I went to the U.S. to continue. But then, of so, course, okay, the hang thing, on, hang the, on. So you you were writing on 14th century what counterpoint? Yeah. So my dissertation in in uh, Bologna. The one I worked for maybe three years and then I published was wow. a work a work on uh, primarily the the composers from the Art Subtilior, so particularly Johannes Ciconia, the Belgian okay. composer that had the premier premier activities in Padua and uh, mm. in North Italy anyway. Wow. So I wrote on him and then when i applied to a phd i did it on the premises that i will keep working on on this repertoire in fact i proposed a dissertation which was approved and i started working on it yeah. on the Quattrocento italian so i was working on Oc again right okay. so at that time then then something changed and i and i decided that i no longer wanted to be a medievalist and so i proposed instead <laughs> dissertation uh, on Russolo, which was also thanks wow. to the presence of Douglas Kahn being a professor in my university. And so 
it was the perfect thing to do. I work with David Nutter in the music department and with Douglas Kahn in technical studies, and I worked from Brussels. So, but when I was in California, when I moved there in 1998, I wasn't mm. speaking the language at all. I was, I was really uh, experiencing cultural shock. I was trying okay. to learn a new way of living. So I wasn't composing. So yeah, for no a doubt. few years, I sort of stopped composing. So Petrolia is important because after devoting several years to first Ockegem and then Brusselo and then the dissertation and getting graduating, I think it was 2004 when I was asked to write a piece for a concert at the American Academy in Rome. Okay. And so that's when I wrote Petrolio. So for me, oh. it's a return to composition after this long hiatus okay. of maybe several years, which maybe are not, may not seem to be many. You know, we're talking about from 1998 to 2003 or four, but it's kind of significant for me sure. because it's, uh, it was a time where I, you know, it feels like an eternity, the time that I had spent there learning a new culture and mm-hmm. uh, and so on. And so it was, a, I would say, a very joyous return to composition. And so Isn't that's it? what the is. That's a, that's a beautiful story that I didn't, I didn't uh, realize was part of your path, that you go from 14th century counterpoint through to Rusolo. And in, in a way that feels nice to me. It's like, it's it's like, yeah. And, and it sounds like you came, you became more serious about your work with Rusolo by coming to America, which is also kind of strange. Well, yeah, because I mean, I, so I was fascinated with Rusolo as a, as a kid, but then I didn't mm-hmm. really research that. And at the university, as I said, I was a medievalist as a music wow. historian, wow. in part because I was interested in, in graphic notation and you know when i was there studying one of the nicest professor was the professor in in uh, franco alberto gallo in uh, medieval and renaissance music and so somehow you chooses what to write on or what you the professor you want to work on based on like how you feel how good you feel with that person mm. aside from uh, you know the subject matter i mean Maybe the professor teaching contemporary music was a freaking asshole, and I didn't want to spend three years, you know, going yeah. to this office. Yeah. So he was very generous and kind and really mm-hmm. interesting person. And, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, there was some graphic notation in the time of our superior. There was a lot of adventureness in the way they put together this music. Mm-hmm. It was really intricate in terms of rhythmical figures, mm-hmm. almost like pre-modern in a way. And so I thought, mm-hmm. well, let's just know more about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why the medieval part. So it was somehow okay. always connected with my interest in 20th century music. And it was along the tour, but eventually I was able to return back. So when I get to the USA, even prior, I never really researched on Russell. This became important while I was there. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of reconnected with this you know, passion that I had for futurism as a child, but I was never a scholar until I re- uh, owned that until I got to the United States. What can you tell our listeners who might have a, I mean, including myself, I'm no, I'm no expert. I've tried to read your book. I'm getting through it. Okay. I'm okay. getting through it. But it's, yeah. a, it's a beautiful thing, this uh, on Rusolo, but also on the futurists. How might you, you know, I know you teach on this, um, how do you how do you introduce people? How do you get people excited about the futurists uh, when you're first kind of giving a, a, a summary or a, an introduction to it? How do you how do you bring them to life? Oh well, I often maybe start with showing some of the visual work and saying, I mean, these artists were completely fixated with speed and thought the speed was something sacred, the, and. They are arriving to this conclusion during the time of the industrial revolutions, the other car, airplanes. And so the the early works by Bala, even the futurists that depict cars that are running, Russo had a a painting about a a car that is running. Mm. But uh, what I find particularly interesting is that it's not just a superficial way of looking at movement and mm-hmm. so i think that the the turning point for me was to understanding that this obsession for speed was not equivalent of somebody that liked to to look at formula one and you know look at you know <laughs> well, let's the, hope so, you yes. know the trophy of monte carlo yeah, yeah i mean yeah. there is that rush yeah. of that but they think yeah. they really are looking at speed 
in a spiritual way. And so the question is, what does speed really communicate? And I mm. think in the starting point to understanding that there is a joy, I like to use this word again, the joy of, of the picking uh, elements or bodies in movement. I mean, the yeah. idea that you can be here and also there, and then between this here and there, there is a continuity in the motion. Mm. Um, this is something really important for Boccioni, that he was a futurist painter and yeah. a part of the movement, and then yeah. Russell as well. So the word continuity is kind of like a key word in my book. No? Mm. So mm. the idea that therefore you move from one place to another, but how does movement really takes place? How is that even possible? When we run from point A to point B, when, when we fly from point A to point B, I mean, uh, where is our body at any single point? I mean, uh, yeah. there's something really fascinating about that. If one yeah. will look at uh, as a spirit, as a metaphor, even for uh, if, for depicting a spiritual journey. I mean, the right. idea of right. movement and so. And mm -hmm. so, I think mm -hmm. I sort of start with this basic building blocks of what their aesthetic was about, trying to again okay. move okay. away from a superficial depiction of movement to something that in fact was you know somewhat sacred for them and then once they did that it was trying to figure out well noise essentially is this movement in the score in the or orchestral yeah. uh, environment or, and so on and so it's sort of the equivalent of something that is pulsating and and uh, alive because actually there is a link between motion and, and life and mm -hmm. that's what uh Boccioni and Rousseau take it from Henri Ebert's song. You know, yeah. you move because you're alive. But I mean, so maybe the easiest way of saying that is like stasis or yeah. stillness equal death yeah. and movement equal life. So from if you're moving, you're alive. And if you're alive, there's a beauty that comes with that. And I think that's probably reducing to the basic yeah. element. From the mouth of the mastic tree, we're getting we're getting <laughs> right. it right from the source here. I, you know, when I fell in love with Rusolo's work, it was first reading the art of noises, and then it was discovering that he was a futurist, right? Discovering that he had kind of this clique of others, and I and and that really excited me too because it's like, a, oh, there's a family of of, of weirdos <laughs> here, you know? It's a and they, they, they were kind of all bonded by. I mean, I I you know. They were a little off, it seemed to me. Like they were a little, um, they were definitely count, counterculture. They still are, in my opinion, <laughs> counterculture. Like it's, um, you, you look at some of these movements through history, right? How did, what's your take on that through having looked at, at the futurists a little more in depth, a lot more in depthly? What, how does a movement like that pop, you know? Came about. Yeah. I think I think it it comes about as also I mean kids uh, groups up and I mean I I it's maybe a silly thing to 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 use it as a reference point but mm -hmm. I feel like the futurists were similar to the kids inside Stranger Things you know <laughs> they kind of hang out and then they have shared this goofy interest in that case is what dungeons and dragons or yeah, whatever yeah. else and so, and so, so they, they go nerdy. into adventures to, yes yeah. but they also yeah. go into adventures together mm. and so and so if this is uh, the movement like that is is the result of life shared together first yeah. and foremost these people were basically there and hanging out every day and they will yeah. you know have a drink in the evening and then they talk about poetry or, or painting and one kid discovered oh you wouldn't know what i seen oh guys you need to get into this and they, and <laughs> they know, were, they were pretty, very, pretty powerful and i think influential at that like they were pretty popular and influential at that time in terms of I, I think they've grown in, in importance uh, uh, over the years, in fact. But I think at that time, they would have had a, uh, an influence on, on, on the culture as well at large, yeah? Oh, for sure. I think yeah. this is also because Marinetti made sure he was really a master in terms of like publicity, you yes. know, and yes. has also yeah. the economical power to make it happen. So he would, mm. he, he knew... He knew how to move those machines. He knew yeah. to he knew to to buy the right ads in the right newspapers. Yeah, 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 he knew yeah. to to throw a party 
the right way and so on. And so, I mean, it's uh, in the all good and bad things, but it, it were generating, in any case, a buzz around that. And, 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 uh, and for, for our listeners who don't know, what what is the era of the, the futurists? It's like early 1900s, yeah? Yes, the, the founding manifesto is from February of, two, of 1909. Okay. Marinetti is already thinking on, on those lines slightly before, but I think one should think that futurism is born as theoretical movement in 1909 and then okay. reborn again in 1912 as an actual artist movement because they first really talk about things without having the tools. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, yeah, by yeah, yeah, 1912, yeah. they f- figured out the tools, they sucked the tools where they can, and they came up with way of actually making the art they're talking about. Okay. In fact, it's a movement based on manifesto. So first comes the manifesto to say, we are going to do this, but yeah. then they actually do it. But, it's, yeah. you know, hardly they first do something and then they talk about it. I think right. they sketch first or they dream about things even without knowing that they know how to how to get the stuff. So Marinetti then, is basically uh he's basically Dustin if you're following along in the in the analogy of Stranger <laughs> Things and uh Russolo is probably like a more like an Eddie character, right? Right. <laughs> anyway, let, I'm glad we had this conversation. I'm really I, I use my time wisely with you. Um, oh, <laughs> what happened? What happened to the in? So Russolo builds these incredible. If you you read the book, the the art of noises, these incredible interrumore, these these noise machines. What happened to them? Did they break, or did, were they just not valued over time, or did how did no, they get no. lost? Was it a fire? I can't no, no, remember. No. So. Russolo uses them finally in a concert in 1921 at Champs-Élysées. But at that point, he's quite weak physically because, you know, he was mm. wounded in World War One. He was paralyzed for several months. Okay. It took a while to recover. In fact, in, in the concert in Paris in 1921, he's not even conducting anymore. His mm-hmm. brother is. He's oh, just okay. present. But, okay. but it's a big hustle to move these boxes all over <laughs> Europe. So the, the, con- the concept kind of is de- dead at that point. The instrument ah. returns back to Italy and he stores them. Because meanwhile, in the early 20s, he started to, do, 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 to design sort mm. of a... Something similar to the internal rumori, but is actually a more portable version of that, which is essentially a, a uh, an, an harmonium, you know, a yeah, harmonium, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Yeah. a keyboard interface instrument that is making yeah. noise, but it's okay. more like the size of a big piano. Right. Uh, so it's easier to ship. And so in 1924, he creates the first model and then brings it to mm-hmm. Paris. Mm-hmm. And he starts to give concerts there. The accompanying silent movie, but the internal more the actual boxes stays yeah. behind. Okay. So in the mid twenties, I think it's in nineteen twenty four. Actually, the same year, Russo is is embarking to Paris uh, mm. on the first trip. Mm. That they a few of these instruments uh, appeared in a performance of one of Marinetti's plays in Prague's National Theater. And so Russo I, doesn't travel there. He sent his assistant Piatti, who builds a handful of this instrument for for Prague, and they stays behind. So at that point, within 1926, we have about 30 instruments in Milan and maybe six or seven in Prague. And they're not. So, these are not considered intrudumore. These are uh, these other things. They're almost like foley machines or something. I'm picturing. Like, is it? No, no. They're sort of intrudumore as well. Oh, they I mean, are. They built, are. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there are a handful of those. There's some okay. extra that the assistant is building. Got now, it. Got it. Got it. <clears throat> now the intrudumore in Milan gets occasionally uh, rented. In, in the 30s or borrowed by a local school that is doing children play. Oh, and wow. probably they use them to do goofy effects. But Russell is really not too preoccupied because he okay. is uh, prior to that in Paris. And then once he returns, he's living in Cerro di Laveno. The problem is when the war starts, we start to lose track of all the stuff. So with the war... Oh, uh, God damn it. Uh, the instruments are very likely, I think, being burned for fire by the Nazi troops during the retreat it, because they were left in wow. a school. And the school, we know as a fact, that was used by, by in the time of Italy occupied by the Nazi forces. It was used as a headquarter for the local 
uh, you know, German troops. And probably in the winter of 1944, they get, oh. they get burned for fire. Wow. That's what the speculation oh, wow. is. There's no trace of that. So the hope was to find the one in Prague. But uh-huh. after several, you know, attempts, other people tried, Daniela Lombardi tried, I tried myself. You did? Uh, there's no trace of the instrument in Prague either. So they must have been thrown away. You're like, you're like, forget about Stranger Things. You're like the Indiana Jones of noise music. <laughs> this is incredible. So you went on a trip to Prague looking for one of the lost Interrumori. Yes. How did you do your intel? Because Prague, no one speaks. Uh, well, it, it's hard. It's hard over there. I had a hard time. Yes, but I was lucky because one of my one of my uh, classmates in uh, uh, in um, California, mm-hmm. Paul Christiansen, uh, he wrote a dissertation on Janacek, and then okay. fell in love with this with this uh, with this uh, Czech girl with whom got married Sharka. Fantastic. Okay. so I went to the archive of the National Theatre with Paul and Paul had been living in Czech Republic now for a few years and okay. he's so okay. fixated with Czech to you know I mean he has a Czech wife and and so on but you know he's fixated with the language adore everything wow, Czech wow, wow. so he was the interpreter That's for that so cool and and did you, did you feel like you came close or it, it doesn't exist it, it pretty much no no up. no it was kind of conclusive that they don't have it they don't have them they they look at that now if you if you can uh, if you can in ignite your your fancy further yeah. i will also tell you that i went there to, to look for the internal rumori yeah. in the basement of the prague national theater hmm. and we found them anywhere and then i left and after a week prague and the theater were in the in the world news because there was a major flood which oh, conclusively Lord. flood all the basement of the national theater oh. so I went there like the week before. Wow. <laughs> wow. Finding nothing. But I mean, better than getting there a week after. But still. What is that if, uh, D- Dan Brown book? It sounds like wherever you go, there's a, f- <laughs> a flood or a fire here. Or where, wherever these things go, there's a flood or a fire. Um, well, I see. I see. Angel yeah. and the humans. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe the cabal is after. Uh, the, the, <laughs> anyway, this is exciting. What, what adventures yeah. you've had. But So when do you come to... So you mentioned something like in the 70s, there was a first group of Interrumore that were built. Can yes, you talk that's a little right. bit about that? I wasn't familiar with that. Yes. So the first attempt at re- reconstructing Interrumore are from uh, 1976. At that point, uh, um, hmm. at that point, uh, there are the schemas that are available yeah. for yeah. the instruments. I mean, the ones that are published in my book. Yeah. which if you look at them, they don't really tell a whole lot. I mean, having mm-hmm. reconstructed them myself, I can tell mm-hmm. you that they only help you to, to an extent. But mm-hmm. um, so uh, so there's a musicologist, mostly like working on, on uh, Baroque music in Venice uh, called Pietro Verardo. So Verardo uh, is interested in organology, so in musical instruments. And so the Venice Biennale, in 1976, uh, uh, presents an exhibit dedicated on, uh, on Russolo. Oh. And so on occasion of that, they built a few of the internal memory, a handful, the ones that are easier to reconstruct. The mm. reconstruction is done with, uh, with Abate, who's, uh, who's a Russolo... Um, uh, he's a nephew, I, I think, because he's wow. basically his wife's grandson not not grandson but his wife's uh is is a relative from the wife's side okay. not pietro about okay. so uh, the two of them had the patent uh and and they, together they built i think maybe five instruments okay so amazing amazing when they rebuild that they also make some recording which eventually will end up in that release by cramps record Okay. That is coming out, I think, in the late 70s. And it's the first time that people, you know, said, oh, that, this is how some of this instrument sounded like. Because, yeah. you know, up until that point, there was also no sense of what the sound were. I mean, the right. photograph was circulating in art book and whatnot. Yeah. People have seen some of this classic 
black and white photograph of like the impeccably dressed yeah. dude yeah. turning cranks of yeah. this like yeah, monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But people said, yeah. what is the sound of it? <laughs> in a way, in a way, it's almost better, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's cool that we get to hear because you've also embarked on this journey, right? And it's yeah. that imaginative, the sound or the noise that got away is also mm. part of the charm there, right? Like, and it, it's cool that you're part of that history now and that lineage, but it is cool that the originals don't actually, we don't know, right? No, we don't know. We do have a recording <clears throat> of the, the cut in the 19, in 1921 of, uh, of one of the pieces in the programs, a couple of pieces of the program of the Paris concert. The uh-huh. problem with that recording, though, is that, of course, it was done with the technology of the 20s. Right. And so, for example, uh, is there a, you know, back then, uh, recording technology was such that any low frequency wouldn't be captured. That is also why in early Dixieland, people weren't really using bass drum, but they're using all sort of wood blocks. Listen, I that just, was I, not I, really I, part of the repertoire necessarily, I just but it was I, the only I, thing. You- I just learned that the hard way. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I I, I did a recording to. Um, you hear my voice? It's pretty <clears> low. It's pretty low, right? I just did a yeah. recording where I'm singing, uh, and I'm barely barely audible because it's on a, a wax cylinder. And oh, I, yeah. I go away, and everything low end kind of does suffer uh, a little bit from that. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's why. So that recording cool. really it's like some kind of document, but also these okay. instruments are used in conjunction with instrument with the orchestra. So there are violins and trumpet mm. and so, and whatnot. So it's hard really to get what they sound what sounded like. So this right. is the only recording we have. There's a moment that you hear them in isolation, and it sounds a little bit like a kind of a roar. Yeah. But yeah. In yeah. truth, it's really hard to, to tell them apart from anything else that is happening. So, okay. so truly, we didn't have a sense of how this instrument sounded like until this reconstruction happened. Yeah. And uh, so what, what, up, what happened in that case was that because they only built five instruments, but the, the score that we were talking about, the fragment mm-hmm. from Russo's Awakening of the City, that is the same one I saw reproduced in my book as I was a child. Mm-hmm. So that score shows... 16 parts, mm-hmm. not just five. So what I, what they did were they overdubbed the five instruments an X amount of time to get all, to cover all the 16 roles uh, without taking into consideration ranges or let alone actually instrumental color. You mm-hmm. know, they reconstructed mm-hmm. maybe four instruments. Some were howlers, some, yeah. but, you know, Brussel built instrument with diff- that made different timbre with different ranges yeah so this recording that we have is really incomplete but for many decades was the only thing that we had to listen to right until i did my reconstruction which is an entirely different story because i took the score as the roadmap to guide me to build so i said i want to build the instrument that will make me play the score as close as possible so how many parts are they 16 well we need 16 instruments and i was able to identify what was the name and what was the range of all the instrument in that score yeah and actually with that from the score i milk a lot of information to get to the reconstruction so i built the orchestra not just five random instruments who um who helped you on that journey? Like th- this sounds really important. What you did there. I'm- so uh, that in 2008, I got a call from the Performa Biennial. Rosalind Goldberg, the director from Performa, wanted to use the Futurist Manifestos as the way of basically curatorially, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, arrange the entire biennial and the, and therefore the future manifesto were the departure point for everything that they did in okay. that year it was okay. a very large program and among the things that she wanted she wanted to have the internal mori mm-hmm. and she wanted to have them and put them on a stage and then Wonderful. and then have a concert and what that i thought it was brilliant because yeah. up to the point that the reconstruction i mentioned before was done more from a from an exhibit you know this instrument they built five with super high-end uh woods and they would put you know they turned the cranks they recorded a couple of things but then they put them in case in in, in glass cases and people would see them they were not used for performance per okay. se okay in my in, uh, our philosophy was very different. I mean, my idea was like, I want to play the score live in front of an audience and I want to yeah. have concerts. Yeah. So, yeah. so Rosalie say, 
let's do it. And mm. she gave me the money. And then I was in California at the time. And mm. California was a particularly beautiful haven for mm-hmm. music instrument builders. There had been a tradition in Northern California, particularly yeah, yeah. since Harry Parch was living yes. in Sausalito. <laughs> I mean, there you, go, you there know, you there's go. a... There's yeah. a lot of history there. Lou yeah. Harrison building his gamelan, and yeah. etc. So uh, that 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 history continues today. So yeah. I yeah. teamed with one of the music instrument builders in the area. I had done all the research, so I was ready to go. Wow. And I said, let's experiment. Then his name was Keith Carey. He was basically my my research plus his uh, w- wood shop. So okay. you no. Know? So okay. we would spend their hours and try things. And I said, mm, this doesn't match the, the description of this particular instrument in the art of noise, or this actually matches that description and matches, you know, what, what Balila Pratella said about that instrument when he heard it live on one of the concerts. So, I mean, I, I knew every single mention of the internal Rumori, not just by Russell, but the, by all the anecdotal you know, you know, writing of the time. Uh, Marinetti writes poems about visiting Brussels studios and in a poetical way yeah. describes some of the timbres that was useful and photographs. And so I just got all this information and with the goal of rebuilding this orchestra as close as possible to the original. And so within a year, we had our orchestra and we played that piece. And it was amazing. Do you have recordings that we can cut to and maybe end this the, the interview with uh, an excerpt? Yeah, I mean, I think you should maybe play entirely the Awakening of the City from the Sub Rosa record. I can send you the, the, okay. the okay. or something. Yeah, so that. it's only a minute or something because it's only a page. You know, I would love that. I would love that. It, uh, it, it's a valuable <laughs> minute. But uh, look, we, we've we've just. Um, you were right on time. We spent 55 minutes and I am just in awe of how quickly it went. But I, I, um, (laughs) you know, so, so you, you, uh, this is obviously like a a big part of your life, this, this lineage and, 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 uh, connection with, with Russolo and the futurists. Um, I have a couple more questions for you. One is, is there a link in your opinion to something like black futurism, uh, which which has been a more uh, I, I I hear more about it and read more about it in 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 our modern world now today uh, to the the Italian futurists is there any connection there that you can see or point to? I mean, not entirely. I can think of. Mm. I would say maybe this much that there was. Uh, even in one of the futurist manifestos, well, one thing I can say is, first of all, one can argue that Marinetti was African because he was born in Alexandria. <laughs> I mean, okay. one can say also Elon Musk is African, and that would be true, too. I mean, it wouldn't wow. be maybe like, you know, Felakuti, but he's also African, and so yeah. was Marinetti. I mean, wow. but actually with that, I would say that there's endless African references in Marinetti's poetry. And because he was born there, he had he was raised by a Sudanese, uh, you know, midwife, and okay. uh, the, the father and the mother were very busy being part of the high society. The father was an engineer mm-hmm. that went to Egypt to, to construct the Suez Canal, so they were very very wealthy. So okay. Marinetti lives in in, Af- in in Egypt for, for his child, his entire childhood. So mm-hmm. then, of course, he returned to Milan temporarily to then move to Paris, where okay. he begins to be involved with poetry and then return back to Milan and then found this futurism. But part of the mm. part of the cachet that he has is also this incredibly uh, fascinating story from a place that of course is being read as incredibly exotic from a European Central European standpoint. So mm. I would say that in the formulation of futurist futurism, I mean probably this idea also of seeing things from a different perspective, there mm. is somehow also Marinetti's own heritage that comes directly from Egypt. Mm. So there mm. is undoubtedly that uh, because uh, as part of their experiences, because also Marinetti in one of the manifestos, the second uh, important manifestos, um, uh, Let's Kill the Moonlight, 
he described the environment of his salon, and among mm. that, he talks about African instruments being present there. This is a manifesto mm. that was written into, in 1909, mm. so prior to you know the the Russell building. Of, I mean, mm. so mm. Um, this is a much longer conversation to yeah, be had, yeah. but certainly yeah. if you read Marinetti's poetry, there's an incredible presence of Africa in it, and this novel, uh, a, a psychosexual drama called Mafarka the Futurist, mm-hmm. is all uh, is benefiting from a lot of like memories from being in Egypt. So, wow. wow. Thank you for that. I. God, man, I don't want to stop, but I'm going to have to at some point. Here. Yeah, but <laughs> if, were there any, you know, a, a, anything a hundred years old or more? We're we're busy tearing down statues on our end here in, near outside of Toronto and 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 in the U.S. As you know, um, is there anything problematic that hasn't aged well with our our friends, the futurists? Um, good point. Um, <clears throat> Not in my opinion, but of course, I mean, one can, I don't know. I mean, nothing comes to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing (laughs) comes to mind that is a particularly, I would say perhaps maybe there is a big argument, particularly in the, the, not in Rousseau's manifesto, but in the founding manifestos about women and Marinetti's take. But as been explained, and I like to think, and based on what I know, Mm. I sort of believe that when in the manifesto he's talking about women in a negative way, he's actually uh, sort of attacking the, the feminine as the place for, for um, is as a place for powerless or mm-hmm. disempowered, because the futurists were among the, the first money, the first uh, groups, artistic groups to have a lot of women in it. And to Marinetti marries, I think you can see the stature of a man by the person you, that, you, that, that the man marries. Okay. He didn't marry like a very submissive wife. He, he, he married a volcano, a very a brilliant painter whose works was prominently displayed in the beautiful show that Vivian Green curated in New York in wow. uh, 2014. Wow. Some of the lion's share is this gorgeous Benedetta you know, uh, large panels that that Vivian put in the top of the Guggenheim at the end of the show and show up. They are absolutely triumphal. But Benedetta Marinetti's wife was a a prolific writer within the movement. She was a prolific painter. And I think her books need to be rediscovered. So I think Marinetti had a problem with women that will spend the entire time uh, changing clothes or looking at their lipstick or putting makeup. And he kind of wanted women that were warriors. I don't think Marinetti had a problem with Amazons. He wouldn't have a problem, you know, with those kind of things. Uh, So, but have been problematic his line in the, in the founding manifesto about women but i think that's okay. what he meant because he also explained that i mean i'm i'm trying to very quickly i understand I, I i i don't i hate to do that to you because uh, you obviously have more to say on that subject but um yeah look th- thank you well, from the bottom of my heart uh, my noisy heart um i i just uh i i really appreciate getting into your brain on some of this stuff it's really really moving and inspiring to me and i'm sure many of our listeners good i'm glad thank you very much richard for asking where, anytime anytime and where where do you go from here like where are you at right now in your career where are you going artistically um okay well um that's my last question i promise yeah right i mean i think mostly keep working and composing i think i mean man, um the i i will like to write a new opera and uh, I've written a few of them, and okay. I would like to work on one that actually uses the Intona Rumori as oh one of the God. instruments in the orchestra. So I'm hoping that this could materialize within a couple of years. I have some good ideas about what the subject could be, wow. but it's always a matter of figuring out where and who's paying for it. <laughs> so not a small problem. Yeah, a big inspiration, and I wish you nothing but uh, continued success. It's, it's a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you, Rich. Thank you very much. Ciao. Ciao. Well, there you had it. Thank you again, Luciano Kessa, for your generosity and everything that you shared. Go to Luciano Kessa, C-H-E-S-S-A dot com uh, to learn more about his incredible career and his work. 
And join us again next time on Industry Tactics. We've got some amazing guests coming up. Um, we'll be live. We'll be doing some stuff at the Guelph Jazz Festival in mid-September. So look up that. Uh, I'll be sharing some info about that uh, later on. You could follow me at Friendly Rich. Go to FriendlyRich.com to learn more. And we're going to end it here with The Awakening of the City. This is Russolo's work brought to life by Luciano Kessa. And uh, the amazing intro, Rumori, prepare to be dazzled. Uh, one minute of noise coming right up. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>